Good morning, everyone. Firstly, my sincere thanks to Steve and the leadership team here at Oasis Church for inviting me today to speak as part of our ongoing sermon, The Church, Why Do We Do That? And specifically, for giving me an opportunity to share my experience of reading the Bible over the past year. And believe you me, it did take a whole year. However, before I launch into my reflections on reading the Bible, does anybody know what this photograph shows? Anybody? Yeah, okay. It's a cover photo from the Metro newspaper last year on the 2nd of October with the headline, Panic on London train after man reads passage from the Bible. It wasn't me, by the way. Although, to be fair, I did read a lot of the Bible on the train, on the tube on the way into work in the morning. Now, to expand this story further, on an early morning commuter train from Shepparton to Waterloo, a man was reading the Bible out loud when I quote, distraught passengers forced open the doors of a busy rush hour train and climbed onto the tracks after becoming panicked. And I think this new story illustrates that almost 2,000 years after the last book of the Bible was written, it remains an incredibly powerful text, provoking a general concern that people who read the Bible in public somehow pose a threat to society and fall into that oft-used media trope, the extremist. By the way, that incident was diffused very peacefully The train guard spoke politely to the guy. He agreed, without protest, to stop reading out loud. Another question for you. Does anybody know the connection between these three famous people? Bingo. Yes, they are the current and former presenters of Desert Island Discs. And for those who listen to the show on Radio 4, you'll be aware that before the imaginary castaways are sent to their desert island, They're given their eight favourite pieces of music, a luxury item of their choice, the complete works of Shakespeare, a music choice, a luxury item, and a copy of the Bible. Indeed, back in 2016, a poll was conducted asking the general public if they would want to take a Bible onto their desert island. Less than a third of respondents said they would want to take it. Indeed, some famous guests have point-blank refused to take the Bible onto their desert island. The writer and comedian David Walliams said, I don't want the Bible, I don't like the Bible. Whilst he didn't express his reasons on the programme, I read an excerpt from his book, Camp David, great title, where he gives an account of being on tour in Liverpool and staying in a budget hotel. After returning from a night out, he started reading a copy of the hotel's complimentary Gideon's Bible and studying Leviticus chapter 18 verse 20 and chapter 20 verse 13, to be precise, which relate to the sin of homosexuality, he'd become angry and crossed out several passages. No doubt he was repulsed, and understandably so, bearing in mind that his best pal at the time, Matt Lucas, is gay. But equally, other self-defined atheists who appeared on the show such as the writer Philip Pullman, did see some value in taking the Bible, saying, oh yes, there are lots of good stories in the Bible. And so, if we really drill down into the place of the Bible in modern Britain, 
we can probably say that, at best, it's irrelevant to the vast majority of people, and at worst, it's a dangerous text that invokes fear and revulsion. However, that's not my experience of reading the Bible, which I want to share with you now. But in order to do so, and to provide some context around what I'm going to say, I'd like to tell you a little bit about me and my faith. Well, I was born into a fairly large Christian family. In fact, my mum, Dee, is here this morning. I was christened at the age of four months into the Church of England. And here I am. (laughs) Now, perhaps I should explain for the younger members of the congregation. That's how we rolled in the 1970s. (laughs) Dressing our male babies like little Lord Fauntleroy in flowing christening robes was de rigueur. It went hand in hand with never wearing seatbelts. Why would you when your mum could just put her arm out? (laughs) Also, smoking on the top deck of buses, smoking on the underground, and smoking on airplanes, all normal. Parents sending their kids to the off-license to buy booze, normal. And kids leaving school at 15 to go to work, normal. Okay, I exaggerate. (laughs) But I mentioned changing attitudes and practices, not to be flippant, but because it will form part of my observations on the Bible. Anyway, having been christened, throughout my childhood I went to church regularly with my parents and siblings. I then went on to attend a Church of England secondary school and later, at the age of 13, completed my confirmation. Yes, yes, I know. Not only was I a pious 13-year-old, I was pretty damn cool. However, having left home at 18, I maintained only a very loose faith for many, many years. Like a lot of people, I went to church at Christmas, Easter, weddings, funerals, and that was pretty much it. But in early 2015, I moved back to Waterloo, having lived in the city for many years. And in the run-up to Easter, I searched around for a church to attend. Now, my original plan was to go to the service at St. John's, which is just outside the back of Waterloo Station. But on that particular Sunday... I got up a little bit later than planned, having had a big night out in the West End. And I had no option but to rush to the closest church to me, Oasis Waterloo. And Steve, if you're listening from your sickbed, apologies, but my weakness for Bombay Sapphire Gin is more than a reason for coming here than your famous surgeons. (laughs) However, I'm so glad that fate brought me to Oasis Church, because it's been to use that biblical cliche, a revelation. I love coming to Oasis Church, and I love what Oasis Church stands for. I describe the church to my friends as grown up, not afraid to question, challenge, analyse the Bible and faith, but equally a church with a hugely positive impact on our local community here in Waterloo. All the things that you know about our schools, food bank, debt advice service, the farm, I could go on. And coming to Oasis made me realise that, although I'd studied sections of the Bible at school as part of my confirmation, I really didn't feel that I knew the Bible or really appreciated its significance. In simple terms, I felt and I was ignorant. And on that point, and why I believe everyone should read the Bible, Christian or not, I actually read the Koran before I read the Bible back in 2014. 
And I did so then because I knew I was ignorant and I didn't want to be unduly influenced by so many neg negative media stories about the Islamic faith and the demonization of Muslims. And I'm so glad that I did because the Quran is a beautiful text with goodness, love, kindness at its very heart. And I suppose I adopted the same approach to the Bible. I wanted to find out its meaning for myself without being clouded by the myths. But ignorance wasn't the, only reading, wasn't the only reason I decided to read the Bible. It was also about my time of life. Having got to my 40s, I know it's hard to believe, but I use a lot of product. A lot. I felt as though I had enough life experience to fully appreciate the Bible in all its glory. And as the preacher says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1, for everything there is a season and a time. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to break down and a time to build up. And I really believe that. I found something similar when reading James Joyce's Ulysses, regarded by Stephen Fry as the greatest novel ever written, and I'd agree. I started to read Ulysses in my 20s, and I just couldn't get my head around it. But I took it up 20 years later and absolutely understood the themes and its central message. I think one needs to have had some life experience. The highs and lows for me, marriage, children, divorce, many career successes, but equally many failures. To really understand the central character of the book, Leopold Bloom. And conversely, in the Bible, to really understand the struggle of the Jewish people and of Jesus. I also better now understand why the Baptist faith developed, why someone would want to be baptised as an adult, because at that stage of your life, you understand your faith and the significance of the act, as it used to be, of course, in biblical times. Remember that John the Baptist baptised Jesus as a grown man. It's only nowadays that we tend to baptise children. And reading the Bible was also about my reflection on life and my place in the world. What was I going to do for the rest of my life. And as Audrey Hepburn once said, as you grow older, you will discover that you have two hands, one for helping yourself and the other for helping others. So it was my time to read the Bible. And here it is my dog-eared copy of the English Standard Version, ESV. Sellotapes across the spine. I bought this from the discount bookshop on Lower Marsh, now sadly closed. The best £1.50 I have ever spent. <laughs> so having decided to read the Bible, how did I set about this task? Well, firstly, I tried to put myself in the shoes of its main tellers, storytellers. From the early tribes fleeing Egypt through to Jesus' fear and apprehension as he approached his Last Supper. Now, I've been fortunate in my life to have travelled and worked in the Middle East, including Israel, and so I'm familiar with the basic farming and desert life that's still practised across the region. And so I felt this immediate connection with the stories. And on that very point, if you only travel to one more place in your life, I urge you, please, make that journey to Israel, in particular to Jerusalem and Galilee, not only will you be mesmerised by the history and the atmosphere, 
but it will absolutely bring the Bible stories to life. This is a photograph I took back in 1990 within the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. To further understand, help me understand the Bible, I actively listened to the excellent sermons at Oasis Church. Those from Steve, from Jill, from Nathan, helping me to better comprehend, to translate the meaning of the Bible, the stories and the parables. And just to illustrate that point, does anyone know what that word is? Any takers? No. No. No, it's the Arabic word for light, nur. And the letters from right to left are nun wa ra. But knowing the Arabic alphabet will only help you to read that word, not to understand the context. Because nur also means beautiful, enlightened, and God's guidance. To illustrate that point further, and sticking to the Arabic theme, another really good example of context is the phrase shahmat. If you know the Arabic alphabet, you could easily read that and say, oh, that's shahmat. But what you wouldn't understand is its context. It says king dead or king helpless, and it's the etymology of the phrase, anybody? Checkmate in chess. Shakmat, checkmate, the king is dead. So once you know the alphabet of the Bible, then you can read the words. But you need to understand the context of the words to unlock the true meaning. Now to help with context, I also researched the internet widely when I couldn't comprehend something. And I read other books to help me. For example, to understand the significance of the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's about 400 years, which saw the rise of the Greek and the Roman empires, I read Plato's Republic, a truly amazing book, and it helped me to understand how Greek philosophy had influenced Luke's gospel, which of course was written for a Greek audience. So having spent a year reading the Bible, what have I learnt? Well, I could never interpret the Bible, its many themes, as comprehensively or eloquently as Steve and the leadership team here at Oasis. And therefore, what I hope to give you is my reflections on the parts of the Bible that either resonated with me or simply moved me. Starting with the Old Testament. Hey, I was hooked right from the very beginning by the sheer power of the stories, the struggle of the Jewish people as they escaped from slavery and repression to establish their own homeland and identity. The subsequent warring with their neighbours, it's like a Hollywood film. And of course... Many of those stories were made into Hollywood films and are still influencing storytelling today. But amongst all that struggle and fighting, and let's face it, bloodshed, I was struck by the early storyteller's emphasis on looking after the weak and the vulnerable, the duty of households to offer hospitality to travellers, those sojourning, taking in strangers and feeding them in a society where food is an absolute premium. How many of us would do that now? I was also struck by the incisiveness of the writing. From Genesis onwards, the significance of the number seven in governing human behaviour. Not only the need to have a Sabbath, to allow people to rest after six days of toil, which actually made me think about all those people today who have to hold down two jobs just to make ends meet. When do they get their Sabbath? 
but also how the seven-year debt cycle is still repeated today in our boom and bust economy. And the concept of Jubilee in Leviticus, wiping out debts after seven times seven years when it's fair and just to release people from their burden. Like the credit crunch back in 2008, the writers knew back then that you can only roll over debt so many times. And that lesson was learned just this week by the directors of Carillion. And the book of Job absolutely resonated with me because of my own life experience. The story of a man who tries his best to live a blameless and upright life, to do the right thing, but becomes a victim of injustice. And that subsequent toing and froing conversation between God, Job, and his four friends is an incredible piece of philosophy that I believe still rings true today. With Job's humility and his courage to yield to God, he ultimately achieved salvation and his restoration to fortune. Moving to the New Testament, my first impression, well, there's not much in it. I'd spent nine months of my life reading the Old Testament, and suddenly I was at the bit, the section that I was really interested in. It might be a short book, but hey, what a story. The more I read about Jesus in the four Gospels, the more I was in awe of his courage, intelligence, wisdom, selflessness, and compassion. How many of us would have the backbone to do what he did? A skilled craftsman with a good job and security, food on the table, he gave it all up for what he believed in, to help the poor and needy, to build a better life for everyone. And I couldn't help thinking what was going through his mind before the Last Supper, when he knew that his death was imminent. Not only that, but that his death would be excruciating. Just read online about how people actually died when they were crucified. How, for example, the Roman centurions broke people's shins with an iron bar to speed up their death. And whilst I was reading the New Testament late last summer, I also experienced something which is mentioned frequently in both the Old and the New Testaments, a vision. Okay, well, maybe not the earth-shaking experience of the prophets like Elijah, but I was sitting up there where I normally do one Sunday during the service when out of nowhere, a strong compulsion, I got this strong compulsion to go to Speaker's Corner. I hadn't been there for 20 years. I hadn't been thought about Speaker's Corner for 20 years. But after the service finished, I jumped on the tube and went straight to Marble Arch. And this is what I found. Speaker after speaker of all faiths engaged in rhetoric about sin, God's punishment, and hell. And for the Christian preachers, I wondered if we'd be actually reading the same book. Each one of us had come away with such a vastly different interpretation. And I'm not being critical of their views. Like me, they've read the same book, and they've all formed their own opinions. But I did find their talk, shouting actually, a useful prompt because it made me reflect on the concept of heaven and eternal life, something we rarely talk about, even at Oasis. John 3, chapter 13. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that, whatever, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And it resonated so strongly with me, thinking about my only son, 
and I suddenly understood the meaning of the sacrifice, I had unlocked the significance of what John was saying. And of eternal life, well, I think we can all achieve that. Not for personal reasons like those preachers, but for our wider desire to make the world a better place here and now. That just through the simple act of being kind to somebody, they will pass on that act of kindness to someone else and to someone else and to someone else. And in a million years from now, that, a part of that giver will still be alive. I'd like to share something with you now that um, I only added to my sermon late on Friday. But I felt I wanted to say it. Very, very sadly, a good friend of mine, uh, an amazing, decent, honourable, kind and compassionate man, was told just this week that his life journey is coming to an end. And that news underscored for me the reading of eternal life. My good friend Chris taught me what it is to be a selfless human being. And I will be immortalising Chris by passing on his gift of kindness to my own son for the next generation to take forward. You know, and this morning before the service started, my boy, who's now 16, taller than me, doesn't say a great deal, (laughs) definitely thinks I'm uncool, sent me a text. Good luck today. And my reply, thanks Rory, that's really kind of you to, do, to remember, big smiley face, love dad. The journey of kindness has started. As I was nearing the end of the Bible, something else dawned on me. And it's what prompted me to mention at the start of my sermon that attitudes and practices change over time. Beliefs and behaviours that were once commonplace become acceptable, unacceptable to the next generation. You know, just around the corner from here on Hercules Road, the poet and artist William Blake lived for a good part of his adult life between 1790 and 1800. It's where he produced his best work, including the poem, and did those, th- those feet in ancient times, which, of course, forms the lyrics of the hymn, Jerusalem. Blake, a committed Christian, sought injustice and suffering all around him. The plight of eight-year-old boys forced out to work without any chance of an education, which influenced his poem, The Chimney Sweeper. When my mother died, I was very, very young, and my father sold me. And young girls forced to work in the match factories in the East End, the phosphorus in the match heads, causing their teeth to fall out and their, and their jaws to rot through to the bone. He saw all these things and saw that they had to change, and there was a different future waiting for us all. And I think Jesus saw that journey too. The Old Testament was, after all, his Bible. And he wanted to tell us that there is another way to live our lives in the future. In its most basic sense, it's that transition described in Matthew 5, verse 38, from an eye for an eye to turn the other cheek. And closing the last page of the Bible, after I read it, I was left with what I believe is Jesus' most powerful message from Matthew Chapter 22, verses 36 to 40. Love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. I, I needed to think more about others 
I'm not the only show in town. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. That if I could find the courage to let God into my heart and to forgive people as I would hope to be forgiven, then my life would be worth something. Having finished reading the Bible, I've now made it my mirror. When I read the Gospels, it tells me how close I am in reality, just how far away I am from being the person that I want to be. I know I'll never be half the man that Jesus was, a strong, in conviction, a smart, wise, kind, selfless and compassionate. But I'm determined to spend the rest of my life trying. I made an observation at the start of my sermon that for many people today, the Bible is at best irrelevant and at worst a dangerous text that invokes fear and revulsion. So let's take that first observation. Having read the Bible, do I think it's irrelevant for today's times? No, not at all. Let's take it on a purely superficial level. Everyone, everyone has been touched by the Bible, even if it's just the language. If you've ever gotten away with something by the skin of your teeth, stopped to help someone in the street and been a good Samaritan, joked with a work colleague and said, well, it's like the blind leading the blind in here some days, known someone who's fallen from grace, tasted the forbidden fruit, gone that extra mile, put words into somebody's mouth, got to the root of the matter, gone to the ends of the earth for somebody, been a scapegoat, said to your friend, well, it's a sign of the times, isn't it? Tried to keep someone on straight and narrow, wash your hands of a matter, been at your wit's end or had a revelation. Then you've been touched by the Bible. But more than this, the lives depicted in the Bible 2,000 years ago are no different from our lives today. Is there still injustice in the world? Yes. Just look at the plight of the Rohingya in Bangladesh. Is there suffering, inequality and poverty? Yes. And it's on our doorstep here in Lambeth. So the fundamental message of Jesus is as relevant today as it's ever been. Philip Pullman, the Bible is not just a great story, it's the story. Turning to the second point, should the Bible be loathed or even worse, feared? Well, I believe that even the passages in the Bible that seem alien to the modern reader can be read with forgiveness and understanding. If David Walliams had continued reading the Bible that night in his hotel room, he'd have been able to look beyond the passages in Leviticus that he didn't like and unlock the true meaning of the Bible revealed through Jesus, that people can change both their opinions and their values and that God loves everyone. So no one should fear the Bible. It is, at its core, a magnificent account of humanity, of struggle, grief, despair, but also of courage, of conviction, of triumph, and ultimately of redemption, love, and hope. And it is my hope that through Jesus, we can all, working in our community here in Waterloo and across the country, deliver the life that everyone rightly deserves. And as William Blake said, reminded us 200 years ago, we should not rest till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. I've said what I wanted to say about my experience of reading the Bible, and now it's over to you. I really do encourage you to read the Bible if you haven't already done so. And for those who have, 
to revisit the Gospels using them as your own mirror and your progress towards the life that you want to lead. And so I'm going to close as the Bible closes on the very last sentence of the very last book, the book of Revelation. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.